What is the difference between a conviction and a preference, between a strong inclination and an inviolable course of faith? Conviction describes not another human conclusion ascertained by analysis and calculation. Instead, it results from hearing the transcendent voice of God. Only belief derived from such an encounter may rightly be called a conviction. Today I'd like to talk about authority versus power. First, we'll discuss internal consent. In the Rutgers University Journal of Sociology, Society, sociologist Michael Casey contended that the operation and effects of non-coercive authority stand in radical contrast to those of coercive power. Non-coercive authority, he says, and I quote, concerns the assent given to the deepest levels of the person to something higher and greater than himself. So what sets authority apart from power is its respect for human freedom, the freedom to obey or disobey, unquote. Non-coercive authority cannot even exist without this freedom to say no as well as yes. It merely degenerates into another expression of raw power based solely on fear. True authority, in other words, is defined by freedom and is dependent upon it. We choose whether or not to obey such an authority. Of course, in order for free associations such as marriage, family, and local community to survive, this doesn't imply that no right or wrong choice with its respective consequences, exists, and this choice has to be real and therefore enduring. It must, in other words, be made to last over a duration of time. No one, for instance, is married and divorced half a dozen times a day on the basis of personal disagreements or struggles that can supposedly only be resolved by the freedom to break one's submission to the covenant. People are not blockbuster videos to be used and returned over and over. In such selecting, as with videos, no real choice to be lived out or lived with is even made. In fact, keeping our options open is the opposite of making free a free choice, a choice where we bear responsibility for our choosing. In short, it isn't living by freedom at all for we are never allowed to freely choose and then live responsibly with our choices. Such free choices are therefore meaningless, frivolously made and frivolously broken. This is irresponsibility, pure and simple, not freedom. More to the point, coercive power never offers us a choice in obeying or disobeying. We either obey or we not only suffer but also, if we persist in our descent, may even die. So the great distinction is that if we obey non-coercive authority, we obey freely and in a situation of obedience freely given. The ability to disobey is never foreclosed. Even if we covenant before God that we will always submit to the given form of relationship, we can nonetheless always break the covenant. The covenant only shows whether or not we can hear God's voice. And if God is real, then paying the consequences of irresponsibility 
also enters into the equation. Nonetheless, our assent to this sort of authority rests only on its ability to inwardly compel us to certain courses of action and conduct over and above other actions and conduct. This inward felt compulsion is what at least partially defines a conviction. So an inward conviction as to the rightness of the authority's call to action and conduct can, alone, bring such freely given assent to obey it. The term right suggests a claim that is just, yet it must also carry an inner, even deeply felt compulsion beyond cold justice, since people don't struggle or sacrifice for even the most just of causes if they feel nothing about them. For instance, a child may stare with relative indifference at a strange animal carried in its frantic struggles down a rampaging river, an animal coming from seemingly out of nowhere and helplessly moving on to nowhere. But if his own dog is caught in the river's current, that same child might, foolishly most would say, risk his life to save the dog. Also, for this reason, Christians see justice as rooted not in an abstract principle, but in a deeply personal God who himself leaped into the current of human flesh, became a man like us, and sacrificed his life in the agony of crucifixion, all in order to redeem us by his love. So in this case, the inward conviction as to the rightness of the authority's call, both to action and to a transformation of conduct, arises from a claim so compelling in its own self-sacrificing love that it has the capacity to create within us a sense of obligation. In other words, one ought to obey. One has the duty to obey, even though one may not strictly have to obey. One can instead simply forfeit the relationship. It is, in short, an ethical obligation not a selfish psychological desire, nor a pressured social obligation, nor a meticulously analyzed logical proposition, and certainly not a coerced political one. It is in this sense that Jewish philosopher Hannah Arendt defined authority as the ability to elicit voluntary obedience. So she wrote that authority precludes the use of external means of coercion, where force is used, Authority itself has failed, she said. This is true whether the failure resides in the one exerting authority or in the one submitting to it. Non-coercive authority doesn't then predetermine what we do. Rather, it creates a predisposition to do right because of a previous conviction. This conviction differs from a mere conclusion based on a rationalism applied from any number of essentially arbitrary perspectives or starting points, all of which in turn yield any number of relativistic and tautological answers. And again, neither is this conviction merely a personal opinion nor a prejudice resting on merely cultural, instinctual, or individualistic predispositions. Rather, it is a deeply held belief in the supremacy of a certain good or value 
over the individual himself. Such a conviction works in us to positively do what is right, but it also generates a resistance even to the possibility of actions contrary to the truth or value that we have accepted as supreme. So this conviction inwardly compels us in two ways, to act for what is right and to resist against what is wrong. This explains why Arendt saw totalitarianism as working not to instill convictions, she said, but to destroy the capacity to form any. In other words, raw power can more easily manipulate, quote, people who live lightly on the surface of things without firm views, unquote. But people with convictions, people with convictions pose a problem for totalitarians, mainly because such people often feel compelled to act in inconvenient and even unconventional ways. Furthermore, their convictions give them a capacity for resisting the demands of power, as we'll later see. So non-coercive authority is precisely what opposes brute power, specifically whenever, quote, such power claims supremacy over all other values, unquote. This is because, writes Casey, in the form of a conviction, authority provides the individual with the capacity to act freely, even when faced with his own physical destruction, even when faced with the total loss of face in the eyes of the surrounding public. Fear, which coercive power so depends on to prevail, loses its grip in the presence of such conviction. Of course, we know this seems to be true for even aberrations such as suicide bombers who, whose apparent convictions stand on a hatred and violence leading to only further coercion and totalitarianism. But suicide bombers do not act because of an internalized perfect love that casts out all fear. Rather, deep bitterness and resentment energize them to seek to strike fear and terror in all others. They embrace terror and death because they are so enslaved to fear that they believe others, too, can be motivated only by fear's power. Such counterfeit convictions must therefore depend for their momentum on the continual application of props and pressures of externally coerced fear and conformity, as well as propaganda, which can be distinguished from historical writing or truthful discourse in that its sole purpose is to induce disgust, fear, and hatred, leading to violence and destruction, even slaughter. In contrast is the internalized momentum of what Samuel and Pearl Oliner called the altruistic personality whose convictions rest on love and nonviolence, convictions that loosen the hold of fear used to coerce human conduct. Indeed, times of great crisis often seem to reduce all struggles to a question of which of these two opposing beliefs will prevail. Coercive pressure that through this deceptive indoctrination and propaganda gives people's fearful and frenetic activity the appearance of being self-propelled, 
self-propelled versus a genuinely internalized conviction based on the infusion of the power and vision that overcomes all fear, hatred, coercion, and intimidation. Such convictions cannot exist then apart from recognition of an authority as distinct from a coercive power transcendent to the individual. It cannot be otherwise because by definition, as we've seen, convictions are values, beliefs, principles, and truths that the individual sees as standing in supremacy over himself and that irrevocably obligate him to conduct himself accordingly. Therefore, convictions must come to us in, quote, the language of principles and commandments, that is, from an outside, personal, transcendent, but non-coercive source, not merely in the form of our own personal predispositions, preferences, opinions, or self-justifying reasons and conclusions. Convictions are something we voluntarily submit to in spite of our own natural inclinations, not something we create out of those inclinations. Thus, to do as Nietzsche advised and have the courage to question our convictions may amount to nothing more than a regression to narcissistic self-supremacy and the godhood of the individual established by his own self-centered reasoning. This finally delivers him into the clutches of the totalitarian state and its ubermensch tyrants in all the ways that I've described above. <clears throat> Just as happened to Nietzsche's followers in the Third Reich, both in Germany and in France. Yet freely given submission and obedience to commands and principles in the daily details of life, commands that come to us as convictions, soon produce what has been called a sensibility, a general attitude toward all life, something more diffuse than conviction itself. This sensibility or attitude is said to be moral in nature, and it soon becomes a part of us, at least if we are in truth living by our convictions, as the saying goes. As such, it can be seen as a movement of a transcendent authority in us, an authority that has begun to conform us to the rightness of his principles, to conform us, in short, to his righteousness. I say it is a movement or motion within us because it calls us out of ourselves, and this is the meaning of the word e-motion, without which there is insufficient feeling to make the sacrifices necessary to live up to the conviction. Again, we simply aren't willing to suffer or die for something we feel nothing about. It is because of such feelings found in the movement or motion of the transcendent within us that as sensibility creates a life pursuing righteousness in and through us, this sensibility in turn lays the groundwork for heroic stands of conviction and without it no such stands are possible. It is just such a combination of conviction and sensibility that led to the heroic deeds of a small community of unpretentious, nonviolent French citizens who saved thousands of Jews fleeing from the Nazis by offering them refuge in the tiny village of Le Chambon, France. But we'll look at this momentarily.
Conviction is not convenience. Today, individual rights have at times been elevated to such an eccentric extreme that they have increasingly become pathological, not only to the larger society, but also to the individual himself. Thus, they have brought us closer to the mindset of the Nazis than to those of Le Chambon. But how can this be? It seems many people have retreated into this eccentric individualism simply because they feel incapacitated to or do not want to deal with the difficulties in coming together with others on any substantive level of relationship at all. Thus, community life in today's larger culture has suffered growing tensions, hostilities, and near total breakdown. Individualism has in fact become for many merely another form of fragmentation and isolation. To put it differently, a radical sociophobia based on an almost narcissistic fear of high vulnerability and risk-taking in relationships, accompanied by an extreme weariness of all life's personal conflicts, has gripped many people who then flee into their own isolated space where they think to effectively create a world of fantasy freedoms and fantasy individualism that is really little more than a selfish cell of individuality that cannot get along with, much less love, others face to face. This culture-wide epidemic of sociophobia, once euphemized as rugged individualism and the warrior ethos, much as it was in pre-Nazi Germany, has become a sickness that plagues the larger culture on every level, precluding not only deep social interaction, but also any positive interaction at all. Those entrapped by this sociophobia have already almost fully retreated into the isolated bunkers of individualism, mainly with their iPhones and iPads. Whatever the case, they often remain intensely unhappy in their much-touted individualism, still longing, as they so often claim, for more enduring relationships in a simpler lifestyle and culture that would better support such relationships. But this sort of eccentric individualism only separates people from any enduring or meaningful ties that could hold them together in a common center, that is, in a community. This atomization has afflicted marriage, childbearing, and child-rearing. Yet it was these relationships that once helped uphold and stabilize people in times of crisis. Such relationships even provided ethical bearings and coordinates to help people move through life's inevitable, but often unsteady and tough transitions. Furthermore, such forms for relationships steadied people in all the many crucial steps of their unfolding lives. They also sustained their relationships with each other and with the land. They even sustained the skills of the past that were once seen as necessary to navigate in such a way so as to keep on upholding the way of life as each generation kept vulnerably stepping out into an unknown future. The severance of traditional moorings to family and community relationships is, however, especially troubling 
when considered in light of Samuel and Pearl Oliner's study of the altruistic personality. This study showed how a personality marked by altruism could survive even in Nazi-occupied Europe. The study came from, quote, in-depth interviews with hundreds of people who at great risk to their own lives and to the lives of their families rescued Jews from the Holocaust, unquote. In the search for the distinguishing attributes of the rescuer personality, the O-liners found that all of them, quote, had an unquenchable sense of personal moral agency, that is, a personal responsibility in choosing right over wrong in daily crisis situations. This personal sense was not typically, however, merely an individual feeling or even a rationally and intellectually derived set of principles. The people instead, quote, had strong ties to communities that espoused rather straightforward and unsophisticated understandings of right and wrong, unquote. This further suggests that although individuals with long-standing and deep roots in such communities, when forced to separate from them, can and have stood alone, otherwise neither individuals nor families can stand alone against the onslaught of pathological cultures such as that created by the Nazis. They cannot even stand alone against the avaricious international competition for political and economic power that spawned cultural pathologies such as Nazism and Stalinism. Instead, the O-liners found that these counterposed altruistic communities of privately associated individuals, beginning with families, insisted on maintaining what many had come to see as, quote, anachronistic, old-fashioned, or traditional moral values, especially when measured against the emerging devaluations and the larger and ever more vicious culture of the time. The moral nature of this altruistic community could alone explain why the altruists who saved so many Jews in Europe had the strength and resources to stand against status terror, which continually claimed to be protecting its citizenry from other domestic or foreign terrors. So whereas strong family and local community ties nurture the individual's care and concern for others, conversely, the breakdown of local community undermines such concern. It instead fosters an attitude that cares only for self. Individualism then devolves into a detachment so severe as to render such a person capable of becoming an accomplice to murder, willing to abandon even small children as victims to the predatory forces always stalking human life either through tyrannical states or through predatory individuals. Therefore, the dissolution or simple absence of strong, stable family and local community life can be said to decisively contribute to a condition of paralyzing moral ambiguity and the loss of the culture of life, as the following accounts reveal. Ethical ambiguity marked not only Nazi Germany, it has also characterized tragic personal stories, like that of Catherine Genovese in 20th century American, America. 
Although the detailed facts about numbers of witnesses and about who saw what where are still disputed, the basic storyline still holds. And this is after innumerable investigations, books, and articles throughout the succeeding decades. It has been called, quote, the crime that changed America, quote, the case that rocked our faith in each other, and is cited as one of the major catalysts that brought about 911, tying each household more directly to police power and state emergency care, since community neighbors could no longer be counted on. In fact, the behavioral pattern bystanders were said to have followed in Kitty's murder became known among psychologists as the Genovese syndrome, and the crime became a staple of university psychology textbooks for the next 40 years and beyond. The grim reality of bystanders who did nothing, quote, is taught in every introduction to psychology textbook in the United States and Britain and in many other countries, and has been made popularly known through television programs and books, unquote. Internet, unquote. So at the very least, the story graphically shows the force of death at work in various ways in human consciousness and some of the multiple approaches proposed to block these pathways of fear of the fear of death when they render neighbors incapable of effectively caring for one another. The crime happened sometime after 3 a.m. on March 13, 1964, in New York City. 28-year-old Kitty, as neighbors called her, was brutally and repeatedly stabbed and raped while returning home from work to her apartment in the upwardly mobile Kew Gardens area of Queens. The street where she lived was lined with middle-class apartment buildings that held retail stores on the street level, floors. Kitty Genovese lived in one of those apartments. Adjacent to the apartment houses was the suburban Long Island Railroad Station and a, com a commuter parking lot with a bus stop. These fronted on Austin Street. Kitty left for home from her late shift at work at 2.30 a.m., she never noticed the man in a white Corvair following her from the large avenues through all of the turns on side streets to her middle-class neighborhood. She drove on home, parked, and locked her red Fiat in an adjacent train station parking lot. She suddenly noticed a man in a long coat and a knit hat standing on the opposite corner of the lot. She hesitated but left her car to make her way the hundred feet to her apartment's alley entrance. She suddenly sensed that the man was drawing closer to her. He glanced over her shoulder only she glanced over her shoulder only to confirm her fears. She then changed direction toward the front of the buildings and started rapidly striding up the street toward a small bar that she hoped might still be open, a half a block away. The man picked up speed and began pursuing her in earnest. Kitty yelled out, Help! Help! She never made it to the bar, which had closed early anyway. The man caught and seized her. 
There was a struggle. Then he stabbed her in the back twice. Kitty screamed again. Lights in the ten-story apartment building across from the scene suddenly flicked on. Kitty cried out, Oh my God, he stabbed me. Please help me. Please help me. One man in the apartment building one man in the apartment building did holler from one window for for them to shut up the racket. One man in the apartment building did holler from one window for them to shut up the racket. Another man in one of the upper story apartments, Robert Moser, called from his win- window. Let that girl alone. More lights flicked on. Kitty's assailant ran back up the street to a white car in a commuter parking lot and crouched down by the car. No one staring from the lit windows across the street came to Kitty's aid. She faltered to her feet and staggered alone back toward a building by the parking lot near her apartment. A city bus came by at 3.35 a.m. on its scheduled route. Again, no one came from any of the neighborhood apartments to investigate Kitty's needs. The streets were empty and silent as she struggled on, lurching toward the back entrance of the building, on the other side of the building where she had first been attacked, from where she had first been attacked. Weakened by her wounds and loss of blood, she made her way to the back entrance of her building, barely got inside the hallway when she came to a locked door and there collapsed. She huddled down, hoping she was hidden, but her assailant, it turned out, had not permanently left after all. He had only circled the area at a distance. Then witnesses saw his car roll back into the parking lot. He got out of his car once more and meticulously searched each entranceway, front and rear, until he found Kitty huddled on the floor of the rear hallway of her building, covered in her own blood. He then raped her, took $49 off of her, and finally mortally stabbed her. At last, he returned to his car and drove away. She had then cried out many more times, I'm dying, I'm dying, please help me. And if you don't help me, I'm going to die. Even then, no one immediately came to Kitty's assistance. Her neighbors called and argued with one another. They called friends on Long Island consulting about what to do. They walked down halls and even crossed building rooftops to knock on neighbors' upper story windows to discuss the situation. They stared out the windows. Husbands and wives argued, but no one could make the decision to answer Kitty's distressing pleas and go to her aid. Some claimed that no witnesses heard her the second time. But one 60- to 70-year-old woman did finally come and accidentally happened upon Kitty, but was so horrified by the carnage that she immediately backed out of the door until she realized that the mess in the hall was a young woman who was still barely alive. So she went back in and held her in her arms until the ambulance arrived at 4.15 a.m. This neighboring woman's assistance, if nothing else, only proved that people were hearing her cries for help sufficiently well that at least one elderly woman risked her own safety to investigate. But in fact, no one 
had even called the police until almost 4 a.m. During the entire hour of the assault, no one called for the police or any other emergency services. When one man finally did call, he said he had done so only after careful and long consideration. Indeed, he had even telephoned a friend on Long Island for advice, who persuaded him to make the call. Another neighbor witnessed the attack but refused to call the police, declaring, I didn't want to get involved. The event, particularly this last quote, stunned the nation. It was not as common a happening as it would later become. It was only the beginning of a fundamental shift in American attitudes. No one back then in the rest of the U.S. could understand why Kitty's neighbors didn't help her. Even if someone had simply called the police, Kitty's life might have been saved since she had died en route to the hospital. But the killer of Kitty and of two other women in similar crimes, Winston Mosley, a native of Manhattan with an IQ of 135, apparently understood people's attitude in the city better than most did. For when questioned by the chief of detectives as to how he dared to do such a a deed in front of so many witnesses, he replied, I knew they wouldn't do anything. People never do. Such incidents of callous spectatorship to human suffering, which first so shocked people in the 1960s, have now become commonplace and unworthy of comment to most people. In the early 21st century, not only is, quote, violence against women all over the world increasing, with women being killed by men in record numbers and even by other women, but it is now also an almost common occurrence for women to be beaten up in public or even killed in public in front of disinterested bystanders who seemingly could care less. Thus, the BBC in 2009 aired a program entitled Would You Risk Your Own Life to Save a Complete Stranger? This TV show featured situations such as the severe beating of a young girl on a London subway by several youths. Though this attack took place on a crowded commuter line filled with grown-ups, everyone present simply stood by, watched, and did absolutely nothing. Similarly, a Spanish female university student was badly beaten by her male schoolmates in the presence of a fairly large group of her friends, which included many boys. Once again, no one intervened. Some may all too easily dismiss these now daily occurrences with vague generalities, for instance, a lack of concern for our fellow man. Yet the many witnesses of Kenny Genovese's murder did not simply look at the scene once and then ignore it. Rather, they continued to stare out their windows, paralyzed by an ambiguity about what ought to be done and what it would cost them to do it. At least one couple even turned out their apartment lights to get a clear view of what was happening. John Darley of Princeton and Bib Latonet of Ohio State University did four years of research to determine bystander responses in such crisis situations. And the conclusions belie most vague generalizations, as well as almost every standard explanation. The study suggested... Instead, that the paralyzed bystander response 
comes from what they call a diffusion of, re of responsibility. Contrary to some stereotypes of callous disregard, crisis situations actually rivet human attention. They even at times produce anxiety, stress, and remorse, but very seldom action. The bystander's conduct is normally neither helpful nor heroic, but it is not indifferent or apathetic either. In the end, Philip Bobbitt insisted that, quote, the presence of ambiguity in urban life, not the callousness of urban dwellers, is precisely what makes emergency intervention in cities so problematic. But what kind of ambiguity were Bobbitt, Darley, and Latanay talking about here? It seems it can only refer to moral ambiguity, an offspring of something akin to postmodern ethical deconstruction. This is marked by uncertainty in regard to right and wrong action, an uncertainty often created by selfish concerns about risk or even simply about inconvenience. This is exactly what researchers say characterizes today's generation, uncertainty and fear about risk. This uncertainty, in turn, produces what has been called undecidability, and then even eventually a smug contempt for what are derisively dismissed as moralizers who suggest that there might be a right course to follow in such situations. In other words, what people lacked in these crisis situations is precisely what the O-liners found in their study of the altruistic personality to be essential for shaping the character of Holocaust rescuers. Quote, strong ties to communities that espoused rather straightforward and unsophisticated understandings of right and wrong. Unquote. Such communities in turn produce in people a sense of personal, moral responsibility and courage, which inwardly made individuals feel compelled to help others even at great risk to themselves. Le Chambon. An example of just this kind of personal, moral responsibility can be seen in the story of a unique small French town that has come to be recognized as having been, quote, the safest place for Jews in Europe during the Holocaust. Le Chambon sur Lyon had been settled in the 1500s and 1600s as a Huguenot mountain village. It was unique in that the impoverished people of the village of 3,000 souls, because of the teaching of a pastor who came in the early 1930s, possessed an unswerving dedication to nonviolence. It had suffered great religious persecution during the Reformation and Counter-Reformation, a persecution that continued through the French Revolution. Centuries later, it found itself in the middle of World War II under the spiritual leadership of Pastor André Trocmay. When the Nazis conquered France in 1940, Trocmay and his fellow villagers began receiving Jewish refugees, both children and adults. 
During the war, the village suffered a raid by the Gestapo and was sometimes forced to house German occupation troops. The village faced, however, not only potential raids from the Gestapo and the Vichy police, but the communist resistance movement in France also bitterly denounced Trocmay and the village for their nonviolence, harassing the village for their refusal to join the armed resistance. But the village's own long history was that of resisting all the destructive forces of history. So throughout the war, these nonviolent villager, villagers rescued and sheltered over 5,000 Jewish refugees, mostly children. In fact, there was never a single instance of any of the 3,000 villagers ever refusing to help any Jew, no matter what the responsibility, inconvenience, or danger. And remarkably, no one in the village ever resorted to violence. In fact, according to Philip Halley, the late Griffin professor of philosophy at Wesleyan University, it was probably the key to why of all the villages in that part of France and all over the country, most of which the Nazis destroyed when found to be hiding Jews, Le Chambon alone was left untouched by the Gestapo. This was the case even though the Nazis knew the village was harboring thousands of Jews. So in July 1942, the Gestapo had rounded up Paris Jews en masse during the infamous betrayal at the Veldiv. They arrested and brutalized over 28,000 Jews, including 4,051 children. Vichy French officials, even the very collaborators who had also been involved in this vicious roundup in Paris, only weeks later showed up at Le Chambon. When they arrived, however, the village's young people publicly marched out to greet them and courageously delivered a written statement to them. It openly declared, quote, We feel obliged to tell you that there are among us a certain number of Jews, but we make no distinction between Jews and non-Jews. It is contrary to the gospel teaching. If those Jews among us receive the order to let themselves be deported or even examined, they would disobey the orders received, and we would try to hide them as best we could. Unquote. Le Chambon became widely known as, quote, the nest of Jews in Protestant country, unquote. The village especially took in large numbers of refugee children, and as Philip Halley asserted, Le Chambon became, quote, the safest place for children on the continent of Europe during the war years, unquote. Halley, who spent years researching the events at Le Chambon for his widely acclaimed book, Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed, wrote that incredibly, quote, in the afternoons a little steam train brought hundreds of Jews and other refugees into the village in broad daylight, and this went on for years. Le Chambon truly became what Trocmay had repeatedly preached to his parishioners that they must become a city of refuge surrounded by the murderous Nazis 
as well as by French fascists and the equally violent communist. Halley related an account of a discussion following a lecture he presented to a group of Jewish women in Minneapolis. After the lecture, he asked for questions, and a woman with an obvious French accent stood and asked him if the village of Le Chambon that he had been discussing was in the department of Haute-Loire in southern France. Halley understood that her question was based on the knowledge that there was more than one village in France called Le Chambon. He assured her that it was this same village that he had spoken of. And the woman, quote, stood there silent for what seemed to be a long time, and then she said, Well, you have been speaking about the village that saved the lives of all three of my children. A silence fell across the audience. She felt compelled to go to the front of the room where she faced an audience totally captivated by the power of the moment. Then she said sim simply, The Holocaust was storm, lightning, thunder, wind, rain. Yes, and Luchambon was the rainbow. The Medal of Righteousness awarded by Israel posthumously in 1972 and the trees planted on Jerusalem's Avenue of the Righteous at Yad Vashem in memory of Pastor Trachmei and the small village of Luchambon testify to the efficacy of shared community convictions and social ties in removing moral ambiguity and cultivating a sense of personal responsibility and self-sacrifice. Well over 100,000 Jews now live on earth because of his efforts. Pastor Trachmei was interned in a concentration camp for about a month in 1943, then was mysteriously released. He went into hiding for 10 months until France was finally liberated. Trachmei had successfully resisted the destructive forces of history in order to sustain the forces of life, and he had thus helped to throw some small light on how to build a truly sustainable culture, one where individuals no longer feel isolated, either dependent on or victims of coercive power, a place that can become a rainbow in the storm. In addition to nurturing a sense of personal moral responsibility among its own members, among people, that is, who espouse their congregational beliefs explicitly, the fact that the Gestapo left Le Chambon largely un unmolested for four years even though they knew that it was harboring thousands of Jews, realizes another hopeful insight about such a cooperative cluster. Such a people, such a conspiracy of caring, can also send out waves of influence into the surrounding culture, impacting even those who don't directly participate in its vision, even those who diametrically oppose it. That this happened with the Gestapo made Halle call what he described a miracle. 
but just the mitigating presence of such a community within a larger society offers an alternative way of thinking and living that may induce at least a more tolerant respect of others. Often it can even inspire them with a hope that they too can become part of a workable solution rather than resigning themselves to their entrapment as participants in a growing and sometimes even monstrous problem. Ours, it seems, has become a world in which people constantly strive against one another, competing and grasping greedily for their own selfish desires and the governmental power to secure those desires against all contenders. As we've seen, people are no longer connected in local voluntary communities of shared values, interests, and vision. Rather, they find themselves increasingly atomized and isolated on every level except the economic and political, where they have become a faceless mass. They have lost their voice to an increasingly media-generated and interpreted god of public opinion. People in such a world hardly know their next-door neighbors so thoroughly have megapolities and mega-economics destroyed have megapolities and mega-economies destroyed any real sense of a true society, much less a community. In other words, human lives are more and more at the mercy of distant, impersonal, and even anonymous powers, powers that people as individuals cannot even approach, much less control. If one of these national or international corporations was to sell an inferior or dangerous product or pollute in such a way as to endanger or destroy thousands of people, what isolated individual could ever hope to bring such a business to account? So people rely on big government to control big business, but as a consequence, more and more real relationships in which people are respected and appreciated as subjects rather than used and manipulated as objects, become rare, like relics from some bygone era. Social researchers such as Robert Axelrod have shown how limited in care is a political culture based on the premises, even some very commonly held economic premises, where the rule of conduct is determined by each individual trying to always gain his own advantage but with little thought of how this may disadvantage everyone else. In such a self-centered society, it is a practical impossibility for any single individual to live a life of cooperation, a life that calls for heartfelt recognition and fulfillment of mutual responsibilities. If everyone else exists in a social matrix of dog-eat-dog, and cares only about their own advantage, competing for their own wealth, their own empowerment, their own status. Then, according to Axelrod, for an individual to enter such a world and try to live a non-competitive, cooperative life proves impossible. Such a person will be so completely taken advantage of that even the barest survival becomes difficult, at least if the individual still tries to hold to his cooperative principles. 
Yet the political order protects just such a competitive and pathological individualism, which results more in isolation than in truly constructive freedom, as we said above. The plight of those who fail in such a vicious social milieu is merely used to further enhance the political power of top-dog elites, while leaving the less fortunate essentially in their miserable condition. This is certainly the situation in today's society where masses of people live according to solely self-centered motivations, while others waste away scavenging off the fringes. And what's more, anyone living in a society in which each is grasping competitively and selfishly against his neighbor can hardly help but tend to conform to that kind of behavior him or herself, no matter how much they may at times long to do otherwise. Axelrod and others, however, also showed that when a cluster of cooperators begins to work together, and when such a cluster or community is situated in the midst of a larger culture in which people anxiously strive against one another, the smaller community or cluster of people can still successfully practice cooperation. So researchers contend that while a self-centered culture, quote, cannot be invaded by individuals who try to practice cooperation with others who don't, such a culture can be invaded successfully by a cluster of such individuals. Yet this is possible only when those in the cluster have entered a long-term enduring commitment to one another and have a common goal or vision, which is exactly what Gandhi sought for India but failed to achieve beyond merely narrow political goals. Yet Luchambon achieved a measure of Gandhi's vision and did it seemingly almost effortlessly. What is more, Axelrod says that people in the mass society who live according to mutually antagonistic principles will begin to see that in the long run, those who practice cooperation are better off, which is exactly what happened to many of the Nazis and fascists sent to correct the problem at Luchambon. In the context of such long-term cooperative close-knit community relationships, the advantages of cooperation over mutual antagonism are so great that according to Axelrod, even if a cooperative community were to have a great number of dealings with people who practice self-centered antagonism and competitiveness, the cooperative community will thrive and grow. It will in fact draw more and more people from the self-centered society into its collaborative framework. This occurs as it both spawns new cooperative clusters and develops a network that provides support to other existing groups and like-minded individuals. Such a community can even effectively resist and neutralize malevolent authority as again the nonviolent citizens of Le Chambon showed against the Nazis. Such a community is, in short, the beginnings of a truly sustainable culture of life. And once we've seen both the desirability and the possibility of such a community, 
we can then begin to explore the concrete specifics of the individual transformation that lies at its base, as well as the nature of the marriages, the families, and the communities that can sustain such a culture. But how in our day do individuals sufficiently overcome this epidemic of pathological individualism and self-centeredness, even a rampant narcissism, to ever meaningfully enter into such a long-term enduring commitment and a cluster of cooperators? We've already suggested the need for a reordering of interior life through spiritual rebirth, preceded by a radical uprooting from the culture of narcissism. But we can now become more specific about how at least this uprooting might begin. Part 2. Self-Reflection and the Call of Conscience We can, of course, look at the social crisis precipitated by the rise of pathological individualism in several ways. One is from the perspective of history say in the context of the narcissistic shift in German thinking and attitudes under the Weimar Republic and then under the Nazis. Another is from the contemporary context of today's social and political crises, a crisis of growing animosity, violence, and even mass murders, both by adults and children. These latter conflicts and killings also seem to correlate with the energetically programmed narcissistic shift in recent generations of Americans. For instance, Jin Mi. But whatever perspective we take, the conclusion remains much the same. As sociologist Casey says, while people have found liberation from the traditional demands for social and personal engagement and commitment, a radical diminishment has also occurred. And this has diminished not only our humanity, but also even our humaneness and the freedom we so longed for. It has also made all but impossible the exercise of a certain kind of non-coercive relational authority, the kind, that, uh, the kind that alone can hope to build and maintain the sort of integrity of character that ensures responsible freedom. This is the same authority that I showed depended on conviction, sensibility, and above all, self-giving love, which is the very source of all such relationships. But for many, this authority now seems impossible to accept in our culture. One reason for this is spelled out by Professor of Psychology, Jean Twinga, who conducted the largest intergenerational psychological study in human history. Professor Twinga tells us that studies show these youths to have been repeatedly taught exactly the opposite of what the O-liner said the altruistic, the altruistic personality had been taught and that saved so many Jewish lives during the Holocaust. In short, generations X and Y which could not empathize with victims, also couldn't understand why people would have helped Holocaust victims without an angle. They also had difficulty submitting to parents or any relational authority, only to coercive authority, coercive authority ultimately backed by the state, and then only when they couldn't escape doing otherwise. 
Twinga said that this generation was taught and believed that, quote, there is no single right way to live, that each should think for himself or herself, that they were free in the sense that no social mores keep them in check, that they should even rebel against restrictive social mores and instead do whatever makes them feel happy, unquote. Above all, they should, quote, never just do what an adult asks. Instead, always ask why. In fact, research now shows that such altered thinking and attitudes from generation to generation were four times more responsible for all the depression notoriously suffered by this generation than even a bad family environment. One main reason for this is because in a culture promoting self-centeredness and its corollary of high self-esteem, voluntary authority calls for voluntary submission to the demands of a self-transcending and self-sacrificing love, not to the demands of a self-exalting and self-aggrandizing self-love, which is really nothing but love inverted to lust in one of its many forms. In short, all relational authority was systematically undermined, most prominently by the entertainment industry and the compulsory public education system, backed by that paragon of coercive authority, the modern secular state. Yet we should remember that relational authority's call for freely given submission only comes to us because of human needs, needs that everyone has and that can only be met by love. Not only do we have such needs, not to mention blind shortcomings, which also only love can forgive, while giving us the chance to continue overcoming our shortcomings. But others also have needs that only our love can meet. And it is this love which moves to meet others' needs that in turn encourages a struggle within each of us. In other words, love prompts us toward an interior reflection about ourselves in relation to others. And it is this reflection that can begin to battle our unreflective selfishness. So it is the work of this reflection coming from love for others that opens us to the possibility of hearing the call of conscience, mainly in overcoming selfishness and its destructive dynamic. This call comes to us in dealing not only with others, but also with issues of our own integrity. Yet this only happens because we recognize our position before a standard that transcends us in our own opinions, a standard outside ourselves and by which we begin to assess ourselves in ways never imagined before. Implicit in this is the need for a personal relational authority over us, a non-coercive authority that we nonetheless believe comes from a transcendent source, an authority of love that speaks non-coercively to our conscience, as mothers and fathers have traditionally tried to do for millennia, until the decline of this goal in our own age. It is this call of conscience carried by love that can pull us out of our narcissistic collapse and into engagement with our fellow human beings. 
It is important here to note that this self-reflection is not philosophic in the sense of which David Hume spoke. Hume predicted that the Puritan Reformation would become utterly secularized because it had become self-reflective in the philosophic sense, that is, in the sense that philosophy has replaced religion by making the abstract concepts about God more important than relationship with God himself. Hume would have seen religion more as a collection of traditions and customs than a direct relationship with God. But the first Christians certainly placed more emphasis on knowing God's presence and an experience of power than standing in awe of any tradition. But if religious tradition was one step removed from the presence of God, then belief as systematic philosophy, according to Hume, took it another step further away from a true religion. Hume didn't make any distinction between reflection centered in an experience of the presence of a God transcendent to the self, which becomes the voice of conscience, and reflection utterly centered in the autonomous mind, which becomes the voice of, at best, philosophy. But he was very thorough in showing how, quote, the philosopher can conceive of himself as autonomous and entirely emancipated from the claims of religious practice. The philosopher thus exalts himself above his religion by subjecting it to his own inescapably biased and partial thinking, deconstructing it piece by piece to fit his own selfish inclinations and prejudices until nothing remains, just a little profane shack of his own making, standing far outside behind God's temple. This process continues, Hume said, until religion isn't religion at all. Rather, it, quote, is nothing but a species of philosophy, Unquote. His prediction of the secularization of Puritanism today seems prescient, at least for one branch that became mainline Protestantism in America. But as said, there is another form of self-reflection, a form that characterized another branch of Christianity. It eventually even brought about the spectacular global phenomenon of Pentecostalism, of course, without self-reflection, this branch of religion is degenerated into formless, arbitrary enthusiasm, merely another form of self-absorption and subjectivism. But if the experience of God leads to a transcendently centered reflection, hope exists that the call of conscience carried by love can come into play in human lives. So the first step in making an exodus from the culture of narcissism and death is to pray earnestly for a love that comes from the God of love and to keep praying until this supernatural love breaks into our personal experience in its fullest possible expression and overflows our lives in every direction. We've already seen how, without this possibility, that the supremacy of love will triumph over self-supremacy, raw power will, by default, come to rule, manipulating people to serve its own purposes in the arena of conflicting selfish wills. Even in personal relationships, the struggle of selfish wills outside the rule of self-giving love will always be reduced to a question of who's in control 
who wins in this battle between competing centers of selfishness. This struggle for self-supremacy then replaces the inner struggle that asks, what does my love for God and this person require of me in this situation? But with covenants of love, the needs of others become a unique and therefore radically different kind of power. The power of self-sacrificing love as it makes us vulnerable and therefore also as it most clearly exposes who we truly are inside. In short, again, it makes us more inwardly reflective and therefore more susceptible to the internal call and guidance of conscience, conviction, and sensibility. This alone seems capable of releasing us from a merely brute reaction to raw externals, such as public opinion, peer pressure, animal force, malevolent but cunning governments, or even our own selfish desires constantly titillated by consumer culture. Instead of these herd reactions, we can hope to cultivate a response to a transcending love. Traditionally, people have always associated self-centeredness and self-supremacy with an infantile attitude, one that sees the entire world as revolving only around itself. In fact, such an attitude can never see it outside itself because like a newborn infant, it can't yet understand, much less freely join or subordinate itself to any relational authority outside itself an authority such as that found in parenthood, an authority that can cultivate us to mature in substantive relationships, not just in social ladder climbing. Such maturity, on the other hand, has been associated with the increasing surrender of such a self-centered view and coming to live for something beyond oneself. This occurs when we humbly and willingly come under some greater authority that cultivates the seedling of our lives into a mature, fruit-bearing plant. So maturity can't come to us apart from the relational authority that builds character by confronting immaturity and selfishness. That's why Casey declared that where the mores of a culture support self-supremacy, the attitudes and habits of adolescents are often prolonged well into middle age. Unquote. Or, as Dostoevsky describes such a pitiful soul, this most innocent of all 50-year-old infants. Harvard's Glendon has shown, however, that such a culture cannot sustain itself. This is mainly because the 50-year-old still wants to be treated as an infant, even when he or she should by now be tending to the needs of others more in need others more helpless, or others more truly dependent. The irony is that if such a culture cannot sustain itself, then the individual who has become so dependent upon it cannot sustain himself either. And ultimately, this is true on every level, spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, intellectually, socially, economically, or in any other way. So the lone individual keeps running into realities contrary to his own will and wants, or at least against those that have been cultivated in him as he stands rooted in depleted poor soil. He also runs head-on into all those other 
competing self-supreme individuals struggling to make it in the same poor cultural soil. In the atmosphere of this growing conflict, even an unreflective person will soon be plunged into a greatly disturbed interior life. The cries of this disturbed life may be studiously suppressed or ignored, and this underlying condition may, may be blamed on others, yet those disturbances and cries will nonetheless affect the whole person in equally disturbing ways. These will at first come in the form of a general sense of dread, of anxiety, depression, anger, or guilt. I've already shown how all these have afflicted Generation Me and how that generation has tried to cure them by further sealing itself off in the prison of self and electronic media while blaming others for all its problems. Yet the inability to overcome these disturbances most pointedly by maturing beyond them and answering the call to surrender self-supremacy has in turn led to what Philip Reef and others have called the rise of the therapeutic state. This is the therapeutic culture that tells us, just as the Nazis and Soviets did, that it's all right to remain immature and narcissistic just so long as we also continue to nurse off the provisions, including the intellectual ones, of the total state, as long, that is, as we remain totally dependent on coercive authority. This so-called cure may also take on the appearance of self-therapy. Then we suppress the cries of conscience through alcohol, drugs, diversions, distractions, amusements, and instantaneous gratification of every lust and impulse. Both of these general types of pacifiers keep us in a perpetual state of unseeing and unfeeling infantilism ever retreating deeper and deeper into the pit of self. There's no way out of this morass as long as we keep sacrificing to the compulsory therapeutic culture, the most crucial of all our freedoms. That is, the freedom to choose a thoroughgoing alternative to compulsory powers and provisions, a freedom that comes with responsibility and therefore brings our attitude and conduct into accountability. If we don't choose this alternative, then we will only keep nursing off the pep of the coercive polity and its social matrix, all the while puffing out our chest and proclaiming what big, bold, rugged individualists we are, but ever perpetuating our infantilism. In summary, anxiety and guilt challenge the individual to reorder the way he lives, not to take more drugs or find more diversions. As said, this means first reordering his interior life and then his relationships, which have already by then begun with his ultimate relationship to non-coercive authority, the transcendent God. This opens the possibility of reordering his life in a direction away from his immature and unrealistic self-supremacy. Rather, he can conceivably turn toward a transcendent authority that, although unbacked by force, nonetheless calls the individual to come outside himself, to live by conviction 
and sensibility by care and love. But then immediately, therapy will step in to urge the individual to evade this challenge. Instead, therapy aggressively buttresses a collapsing self-supremacy. This is the case on any number of levels. Again, it may come as self-therapy in the form of alcohol, illicit drugs, distracting or unhealthy amusements and relationships, often, often involving obsessive compulsive behavior, or it may come through the reinforcement of the highest self-esteem movement via education, media, and literature, or it may come through some form of professional therapy by way of chemicals or counseling, or it may even come through therapeutic parachurch groups. These last two sources of therapy, counseling and parachurch therapy, try to convince the individual that he is a victim of any and all voluntary relational authority, whether in families or in high-demand churches. In other words, he's not a rebel, an accomplice who contributes to the total usurpation of life by totally relying on the type of course of authority that finally birthed the Nazi Führerstadt and the Soviet state. So any non-course of authority calling on the individual to freely relinquish his self-supremacy through an appeal to conscience and conviction can only become the chief antagonist to therapy, as Casey and many others have shown. Therapy opposes any inward compulsion to obey relational authority. It further opposes any inward resistance to coercive authority an authority that soon establishes its demands and power as the new social conventions. Of course, therapy also opposes the convictions and self-discipline that might resist selfish drives and compulsions. Therapy now calls such self-discipline repression. Thus, Casey concludes that relational non-coercive authority, which calls us to love and to maturity, becomes, quote, the foundational problem of therapy, the problem therapy was created to solve. Or we might could say it is the remedy that therapy, therapy was created to preclude and make to appear unnecessary. Therapy, in short, is geared to serve the self in maintaining its own power, control, and supremacy in the face of every crisis of conscience. Therapy instead undermines the legitimacy of any call of love to relinquish self-supremacy for a life lived engaged positively with others, a life lived under a transcendent authority capable of changing us by the deeply inward working of redeeming love. Therapy, in short, ultimately serves only coercive power, never relational authority, which is its greatest enemy and threat. Again, the only thing powerful enough to make non-coercive authority compelling in the face of therapy and the call for the surrender of self-supremacy is self-giving love with its compelling, quote, appeal for the interests of others. Whether or not this love will prove sufficiently transformative depends on two conditions. One, on the degree to which we voluntarily and eagerly seek it and then release ourselves to its complete rule in our lives, and two, on the irrevocability of our commitment to do so. 
that is, on whether or not, as we surrender to whatever form a particular covenant of love assumes, our commitment is immutable and binding, covenantal and unconditional. But when these conditions are met, quote, such a yielding to love radically alters the way we live, unquote. It places non-coercive authority, such as in families, churches, and communities, on the only foundation upon which such authority can ultimately survive. It thereby shifts the meaning of love from sentimentality to a view of love as the most powerful and transforming of forces, one that calls on us to lay down our lives and make, in Casey's words, a gift of ourselves to others, to spouse, children, parents, friends, and community. This surrender, of course, can never be forced, but unlike Caesar, Jesus did command it. So it's only a question of whether we can and will freely accept his relational authority, his lamb-like lordship, his empowerment through his spirit, his gentle supremacy over and above our own claims are those of a coercive Caesar. Even when Caesar may come to us fleeced out as the therapeutic state, offering us his bread and circuses, he is still a coercive power, proclaiming our victimhood at the hands of all non-coercive authority, all authority which Caesar sees as interfering with his totalitarian designs. Of course, as Christians, we believe that the individual's answer to this question of whether Caesar or Christ is the Supreme Lord will determine the fate of marriage, family, church, and community, even the fate of the individual's own soul, even the fate of the world itself. Twinga quoted a 20-year-old woman who said, It seems more people in today's generation are depressed because they can't achieve their dream, because the world has become so much more competitive, unquote. But is this because their dream is only an illusion, or is it because it's too self-centered to be worth achieving as a dream, or is it because the young have planted a good dream in the wrong soil, in the wrong culture that looks to the wrong kind of authority? Many, like the enslaved Hebrews, have even longed for a different culture, a different world, some way to make an exodus out of their enslavement and all their Egypts. Take a good close look sometime at the world out there, they tell us, and you'll see why. But unable to find any exodus leading to a greater life, one that goes beyond, that transcends their present limitations and powerlessness, an increasing number choose the exit of totally surrendering all power. The exit of a self-inflicted death through drugs or otherwise let us hope the world itself does not make such a choice in another all-out global war. Yet even for those who would make an exodus to a greater life, the specter of the one like unto Moses always stands before us. With all his relational, non-coercive authority, he would speak into our lives, change us in our innermost person, cut away the chains of self-centeredness and call, call us onward and upward to his promised land. And many, looking at the battered body and face that Christ received for all his efforts, 
would just as soon have Caesar as their lord. They would rather live under the crack of Pharaoh's whip, tromping out bricks for the cities of Egypt, than seek out the community of Christ and surrender their own godhood to the meek and lowly lord of heaven and earth, the one who came riding on a donkey, who hung naked upon a cross as a condemned criminal in the ultimate humiliating expression of self-sacrificing love. But if the Bible is correct, it is this power of love that will in the end triumph over all other powers, simply because it is the most powerful force in the universe. It is, after all, said to constitute the very essence of God himself. The unassuming little village of Le Chambon believed this simple truth and became the site of a miracle. Thank you for listening to this audio message. It is our hope that you have been both challenged and inspired by the Word of God. For other messages and materials by this author, please visit www.homesteadheritage.com.